But the big takeaway is fundamentally committing your life to getting better, which means running to the edge often throughout your day and staying there and dancing on the edge as long as you can and having trusted people or a incredibly introverted, honest approach where you say, okay, how did I really do? Born in 92 on the block with the sharks, cut from a different cloth, y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park. Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate. I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith. I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Matt Labrie here, host of the top 1% globally ranked podcast in the world, Decoding Success. Really excited to have you here rocking with us. Whether you are a new member of our incredible community or someone returning, we are welcoming everyone with open arms. So thank you so much for being here. And the reason you're here, the reason you're listening to a podcast right now is pretty simple. You want growth. You want to level up. You want to expand your horizons. Essentially, you want to be able to master your life. So you're in no better place and there's no better person that's joining us. You just heard from our incredible guest, our friend, Dr. Michael Gervais, a high performance psychologist author, and one of the world's leading experts on the relationship between the mind and human performance, what we put out into the world. Now, over the course of a 20-year career working with world-class performers and organizations, Michael has developed a framework for the mental skills and practices that allow organizations, teams, and individuals just like you and I thrive in pressure-packed environments. Now, just to give you some insight, Dr. Gervais has worked with some really incredible individuals, so what we're diving into today is super applicable, and it works. I'm talking about Super Bowl winning teams, the Seattle Seahawks, world record holders, Olympians, MVPs from not just one major sport, every major sport, internationally acclaimed music artists, Fortune 500 CEOs, the list goes on. So like I said, what we're diving into today is something you might want a pen and pad for because it's super applicable and it works. To give you some insight into what we are diving into, we're going to be talking about what life mastery actually is. How to actually define it for yourself versus just taking my definition or Dr. Gervais, getting an understanding of what life mastery is for you, and then finding out how to achieve it. That is what we're walking away from this episode with, but I want to fill you in on one more thing before diving into this. Dr. Gervais loved recording this episode, and by the end of it, he said, Matt, I want to do something with you. I want to do a giveaway. I want to give away my course, Finding Your Best, to give you some insight into the course. You're going to be able to craft your personal philosophy, set a vision, apply and bolster the skills of confidence, optimism, being calm, and mindful. The course is absolutely incredible, so we're giving it away to one person. All you have to do is this. Screenshot that you're listening to this episode on your Instagram story, Twitter feed, Facebook, whatever it may be. I need you to post it there. I need you to tag Dr. Gervais, which you could find his handles in the show notes of this episode and myself so that we're able to track who's participating and you need to follow us. Once you do that, you are entered to win. Now, this course is in conjunction with Pete Carroll, who is the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. They're actually entering the playoffs right as we're putting this episode out. There is incredible stuff in this episode, and we're giving it away totally free. All you have to do is share this message. Share this episode with the people in your life just by posting it on your socials. If you do it across numerous platforms, you'll have multiple entries. Check out the show notes of this episode to find out more about this giveaway. And without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Dr. Gervais. Dr. Michael, this has been a long time coming. Super excited. I absolutely love your work. We connected back in 2017 on Twitter. 
I'll never forget that. It was really, really awesome of you. I know that you had a delayed flight. I was actually reading our DMs earlier this morning just because I knew that we were hopping on this today. But thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm stoked to be with you, Matt. Thank you for including me in your project here. Of course. Absolutely. I'm curious. How are you? What's going on in your life? What's going on today, et cetera? I mean, life in general, it's good. You know, I know that there's a lot of suffering and struggling that's happening in the world. Mm. Um, For me, I spent so much of my time being able to prepare for things that go sideways that I feel fortunate that I've put 30 plus works into 30 plus years and to be able to kind of navigate as best as I possibly can. So, you know, I feel blessed about that. And then at the same time, you know, like, I don't know how to do it. Otherwise, the future looks bright. And so I know, and I say that like out of respect for all the suffering in my family and the struggling that's taking place, but also across the planet. So it's a mixed bag. I'm grateful. I'm seeing what's possible. And then I'm also connected to how hard it is for people right now. Absolutely. Now, you said that you prepared for when things go sideways. What did that preparation look like? Was it fully mental? What was it? Yeah, that, I mean, that's it, right? So early days. So as a trained psychologist specializing in sport performance, I didn't get here accidentally. <laughs> I needed to figure it out myself. And so what that means is as a young athlete trying to sort it out, there was times when I was able to do the thing I knew I could do. And there was times I couldn't, but my body didn't change. My technical skills didn't change, or I should say like they didn't dramatically change overnight, but I just couldn't access them. And so the only thing that was different from situation one to two was my mind. And so at a young age, I was like, what is this thing called psychology? And I just started peeling back the onion and, you know, layer after layer after layer. And this was, you know, I'm 50 now. And so this was, you know, 30 years ago is that I just, or 35 years ago, I just came to understand that when you train your mind, you're better able to adjust to the unfolding, unpredictable unknown. And if you don't train your mind, it doesn't mean that you, it doesn't mean that you can't, you know, do well. It just means that you've had to have some sophisticated mentors in your life and that have shaped some principles that are sturdy in high stress environments. But for most of us, training the mind is, it's kind of like a prerequisite to be able to do well. Absolutely. Now let's get into details. I believe you're referring to surfing. Is that correct? Oh, Matt, you did your work. Yes. Yeah. Surfing well, was yeah, my I mean, it's not even doing the work. I just have a genuine interest in your upbringing and seeing the work that you're putting forth, right? Like I, I've heard you on numerous interviews. I've read about you, what you put out into the world, et cetera. And from what I remember, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you had zero to no issues performance-wise when there was no pressure on you from a competition perspective versus when you were competing surfing. That's when you know things started to get a little bit shaky. But I'm curious, what was it that made you feel like the pressure was on when competing. Yeah. So one thin slice that I think is important, you got most of it, is that there's two types of surfing. There's what's called free surfing, and then there's competitive surfing. And so free surfing is, there's a culture to it, which is, I don't know, it's like, there's a a core to it. There's a, a code, which is, you just put yourself in a heavy situation. You don't ask if anyone saw it. You don't talk about it. You just put yourself in the heaviest situation. And it's this quiet knowing that you have what it takes. And so I was cool there. Like I could, I could operate in that, in that space. But as soon as there was people on the beach, as soon as there was judges and critics and, you know, people watching and observing and basically critiquing and judging, I, I was trying to manage that. And I didn't know how come to find out you should never try to manage that. But as a young kid, I didn't know, I didn't know how to focus deeply on the task at hand and let go of the things that I had zero control over. And so that just took up 
too much space inside of me and I couldn't access the skills. So that was the difference. That was that was the only difference is that people were watching. And then it took me you know, probably far too long. I know you would have gotten there a lot faster than me on this idea is like, what am I doing? Why do I care? Like, why do I really care what they think of me? And then I, I eventually got to a places which are to a place which is, you know, I'll be damned if I'm going to change the way that I think or act or speak because somebody's watching. And I, I had a long journey to get there. And yeah, that was that was the that was the essence of it. I'm really curious if you don't mind me going there. Where did the thought process or focus of other people's critique of your performance stem from? Right, like where was that in your potential childhood? You said this happened around 15 years old. Like, was there a particular moment before then that you felt like you were being critiqued? Maybe it's like just the educational system where we're getting grades on homework, etc. Where you know, I mean, that's happened to me too. I'm just curious for you, what was it? Yeah, well, there's two there's two things likely if when I look back and I didn't have like a panic attack or a lightning bolt moment or you know I didn't have a thing that I can point to. But one of the things for sure is that in my family there would have been subtle clues that what other people think is important and that you know they were trying to help me be my very best and help me understand what success is. But there's these subtle clues along the way which is like, hey, you know, maybe you want to change that sweatshirt. Why? I like it. Well, I don't know. It looks kind of weird. Oh, okay. So like subtle, subtle, subtle things that just piled up. And then there was a probably something more organic to me, which is when I was first introduced as a kid to stick and ball sport, you know, soccer and those types of things. Sure. I didn't get it. Like I remember being a young kid and I was like, what are we doing? That there's adults with these man-made rules and these adults are kind of yelling at us. And like, they say that they want to help us be better, but this sucks. And it was man-made rules and adults, you know, I, I, I don't know, maybe I had a shitty coach and like whatever, but I just remember at an early age, like that's not right either. And then, so you pulled those two over and eventually it was like, I'm going into the, the frontier. I'm going to get lost in like my own little spot where I can figure some stuff out and, you know, kind of consequential waves or consequential environments. And then when I came out of that, I wasn't better at the social thing. I was actually worse. And so that was the nexus. What eventually helped you overcome the quote unquote performance anxiety or whatever you want to classify that as? Like what helped you take that next step? Again, there's, I wish I had a dramatic like lightning bolt moment thing. Oh, it didn't? Okay. No, but there was a moment that started it. And I mean, the answer to your question is a life pursuit of understanding how my Mm. thoughts and emotions work and mapped up against how the best in the world, the science of sports psychology is really the study of how the study of excellence in sport and how do the best in the world use their inner life and how do they work on mastering their self. And so, you know, it's a a life pursuit, but then, but I did have a light bulb moment in when this whole thing kind of kicked off as an origin story is that I was surfing, I was in a competition and again, I was like 15 years old and the, um, I was competing against somebody probably a decade older than me and we surfed all the time with each other. And so he paddles by me in the heat and I'll set the conditions. Like in surfing, there's usually about 30 to 50 people out in the wave and there's six waves every 20 minutes. Okay. So scarcity is the thing and you got to yeah. be aggressive and on it. And everyone thinks surfers are like these laid back, whatever, like you got to be on it. It's a, it's a precious resource. And if you don't, if you miss a couple of those sets, as they're called, you're sitting out there for a couple hours, like not really doing anything except sitting. So he says, and so now we're in the competition mode. There's only three people in the water. It's like six foot conditions, perfect glass out. It's like a playground. And there's only three of us in the water, like I said, and he paddles by me and he says, Jervais, I see you surfing all the time. 
He goes, and he's looking at me like, you're a mess, dude. And he says, you just got to stop worrying about what everyone's thinking about you. Mm. And I thought, are you fucking kidding me? Like, how does he know? How does he know what's in my head? And like a good competitor, he just paddled off, you know? And I don't even remember where he went or what he did because there was this moment inside of me. I was like, that's right. That is right. So what am I going to do about that? And then, so the obvious was to kind of flip it. Well, let me think about how I want to feel. Mm. And so, so it was that, like, I knew I didn't want to think about what they were thinking. So how did I want to, how did I want to feel right now? And I just started imagining, you know, loosely using my imagination to figure that out. And that was like this one little light bulb moment that still sticks with me. That was an impetus to say, okay, the way you think matters. Yeah. I want to ask a question. And the reason I'm going to ask you is because I know that you've been around, you know, the highest of performing athletes in the world. This might be an arrogant question, but I'm going to throw it out there for the sake of it. Why are some athletes or let me not even say athletes, but why are some people able to focus on solely the mechanics and have success versus other people that have to focus on the mechanics and the mental? Okay, so that's a cool question because I, I, I disagree with the framing of it. Okay. Is that what I would say is my experience is that the half percenters, the ones that are far different than the rest of the pros. So to be a to be on an NFL team and to be on the bench, you're still extraordinary. Like the Absolutely. level of talent there is and same with the NBA, same with NHL, same with baseball. So my experience is that the the half percenters are they are working to master everything that's under their control. So they're all in on working from the inside out, their mind, if you will. They are all in in studying how the greats work, how they can refine small little movements, you know, from the technical and physical side. For the most part, there are some freaks, you know, that they roll out of bed, grab a fifth of scotch, you know, a burger, roll into practice, jump 42 inches, run you know, 440 flat, like there's freaks in the world. So, but for the most part, those very rare special ones, they're all in. And there's an honesty about them that they are working to get to the truth of what's holding them back, what they're great at. You know, there's an honesty about them. Okay. Now, if you come into the, like, let's say the top 5% in, in the professional or elite sport, there are some where the physical game comes easier than the mental game. There are some that the mental game comes easier than the physical game. So, so it's not that they don't invest in it. It's just as a little bit easier, right? And so it's like if, let's say that you are really strong, okay? And I'm really flexible, which I'm not. Let's just say that. And, and then and then you and I are going to go kind of, we're on this fitness kind of thing together. And you're like, hey, let's go hit some weights. And I say, I, I think we should be doing something like, we should be doing some mobility or some flexibility stuff. Now that's just you and I going to our strengths. So what the, the, the greats do is that, let's say you're really strong, okay? You lift weights and just by looking at them, you put on, you know, muscle, right? That you would say to me, this is if you're in the half, the half percentage. You're like, hey, Mike, let's go work on some flexibility. Show me what you're working on. Like, how do you get that range at the end? So it's not just like double down, completely double down on my strengths. It's not just that. It's like this curiosity about how can I learn from you and you and you and you. Now, let me pause that for just a moment. The half percenters also wear people out. What does that mean? You might want to have them over for dinner once, but it, it is about their mission and their purpose, mostly, mostly in elite sport. And so they wear people out because it, they are relentless. They are uncommon with the way that they focus on getting better. And so you'll sit down at dinner and all of a sudden it turns around, not about them, but it, it's 
the focus is about them getting better or figuring something out. And so they're holding court, but they're holding court in a way because they're trying to unlock something. And so that for many people, that's tiring. It's a bit exhausting. Okay. So if you, if you kind of slide your way to the bench in pro sport, most of them have the physical and technical skills. They have them. They, right. they, they, they've worked on them like they're good at them, but they haven't quite figured out just like I was when I was a kid, how to unlock it on command. So that's where you see some folks saying, hey, I want more from the sports psychology. I want more. I want more. I want to unlock it. So the rare ones at the upper percentile, they are relentlessly trying to unlock everything. The middle of the pack, you know, they're, they're more relying on their physical and technical and they have enough psychological skills. And so the, the extremely hungry on both ends are, are saying they're leading the way and saying, listen, there's only three things I can train. I can train my craft. I can train my body. And I spent 20 plus years doing that. And I can train my mind. Show me. Mm-hmm. So the hungry are leading the way. And they're about 10 to 15 percent. I'm sorry, 10 to 15 years more advanced than big business or call it the, the rest of us that are not in elite sport. So they right. are. 10 to 15 years ahead in practices and really wanting to get after it. And I'll stop after I say this is that they, something in sport that is really important, especially big sport, like elite sport, that's really important to honor is that they fundamentally organize their life to get better every day. So that the structure of their day fundamentally is to put themselves at the edge of their capability, figure out in an honest way what's working, what's not working, have other adults and their peers look at them and watch them and offer them a suggestion or an eye roll. And so they fundamentally organize their life to get better, which means that they're right in this vulnerable state far more often than most of us are. And that's how they get better. So that's a very important insight is that it's not just that they're born a certain way. It's that they fundamentally organize their life to get better at the most rapid clip that they possibly can. And the whole community is focused on that as well. Coaches, peers, admin, whatever it might be. Yeah, I appreciate that elaboration. Like I said, it could have been a potentially arrogant question because I'm not necessarily inside any sport organization or a part of a team or whatnot. And I I just look at people like Jordan, right? For instance, you know, probably the greatest basketball player we'll ever see, you know, debatable, of course, I personally think he's the greatest. And I see stories, documentaries and whatnot, where after games, he's not going to put up more shots. He's going to smoke a cigar and sit at a casino and gamble and whatnot, but he's getting out on the court the next day. And he's clearly the best one out there. It's not to say that he doesn't have bad games, but you know, at the end of the day, it led me to ask that, you know, and I I see it firsthand and it's like, what's stopping other people from getting there and having this conversation? It's potentially the mental or maybe the Yeah, I think the mental is a great opportunity. I think the field is green right now. I think it's wide open. I think, you know, psychology in general is about a hundred years old as a science. Sports psychology is about 40. So it, you know, it doesn't mean that principles and practices that have been around for hundreds of years are not still being used. But there's a, for anybody trying to sort out how to be better in life, now is a pretty exciting time because the science is catching up to best practices and very applied ways that in small, thin sliced ways that we can get better. But most people are looking to kind of loosely do a couple things here and there. But the big takeaway is fundamentally committing your life to getting better, which means running to the edge often throughout your day and staying there and dancing on the edge as long as you can and having trusted people or a incredibly introverted, honest approach where you say, okay, how did I really do? And 
in business, nobody's critiquing the email I sent or didn't send. Nobody's critiquing the call that I had or didn't, or the tweet or the the text or whatever. Like, I don't really know if I don't have great feedback loops in business to know if I'm doing well. And so even in this conversation, like, you know, I'm making it up as I go. (laughs) So I think- Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. It leads me to ask this based off of what we've already started talking about, specifically your journey and now your profession. I'm curious to learn if there was a percentage from an athlete perspective of how much their mental is impacting them. What about the mental, the impact from a mental perspective stems from childhood? All of it. Yeah. All of it. All of it. Yeah. It doesn't mean that so, but it doesn't mean that we're stuck with it. So the way that it's a cool question, because the way you framed it is let's oversimplify kind of the inner inner experience here. We've got a brain and a brain stem. And that's the the brain is three pounds of tissue that sits in the skull. And if we thought about it, that is the hardware, right? Again, I'm oversimplifying the most complicated ecosystem that we understand really is this human experience. But so you got this three pounds of tissue that sits in the skull. You got a nervous system that comes down through your spine, goes out to your your muscles, and then kind of feeds both directions from the outside world in and back up to the brain, from the brain down and out. And then we've got our mind. And the mind is like the software that's running that three pounds of tissue, the hardware. And so early childhood experiences certainly are shaping both the hardware and the software. So in psychology, we're interested in both. But more particularly, let's just talk about the software. So early life does shape software. And so what is software? It's the way that you make sense and meaning of the world around you, your experience in the world around you, and the way it feels to be you. So that's really what our mind is doing is like, it's trying to sort out like, how should I be thinking about what's happening? And psychology in general, if we just thin slice it, the thinking part of it is really important. And guess what? Age zero to two, You sorted out, and so did I, if the world is safe. It was baked. Your level of trust, your water table of trust, if you will, is baked by, was baked by the age of two. Whether your parents, caretakers came and got you when you cried, you know? And if you said, oh, I trust that when I say something or cry, you can't speak yet. But when you're crying or making fuss about something, it's immediately taken care of. You're like, oh, I actually have agency and like, I have agency. I can influence my world around me. And you know what? I don't have to live in pain and I can trust that people are coming and get me. So the level of trust of others is baked by the age of two. How about that? So when you, you know, and that's, that's one, that's very, one very small little thing, but that's why when we say, Hey, what'd you think of her? What'd you think of him? And then oftentimes we'll go, you know, I don't, I don't really know, but I just get this feeling like, I don't know, I'm going to watch my back on uh, with him. So it, it like almost escapes words because our, our assessment of trust of others was baked before we had words, pre-verbal as it's called. So anyways, we fast that forward and your parents are saying things to you as a young kid. They're giving you experiences. They're shaping your psychology to their best ability. And then your knucklehead friends are shaping your psychology. And then, you know, whatever magazines you're watching or websites you're watching or TV shows that you're in movies and da, 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 da. That's all shaping your psychology. The music you listen to, the lyrics you vibe with, that too is shaping your psychology. So it's almost like your psychology, if left unexamined, 
is a bit like a junkyard. Mm. There's, you turn the corner and there's something cool that pops up like, oh, that's how I'm going to think about this. You turn the other corner, you're like, oh yeah, it's a bit like a junkyard experience. So that is what's awesome about psychology is that you can change your software at any time. You can upgrade it at any time. All you got to do is go inside, get honest, work with a trained professional, a guide, a psychologist, I would be biased to say, or somebody that holds incredible wisdom and they are solely focused on helping you get better. That's kind of the blessing and the agreement as a psychologist to a client and go to work. I'll tell you what, that work is awesome. There's so much freedom on the other side of that work. And when you go into the dragon den and do that work, you will meet your dragon. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. and it's not always pretty. I'll tell you that, but there's so much freedom on the other side of it. And so I don't know, that's, that's maybe a couple ways to think about it is that it's the programming of your software and you can upgrade it anytime. It does take work though. So I have to ask you, why do experiences and how they're interpreted differ from person to person? So for example, what I'm asking you and I, we might not live the exact same experience, but you know, you mentioned the age bracket of zero to two years old, where we're learning if the world is safe. You know, your parents nurtured you perfectly. My parents didn't. And this is just an example. But oh, I'm sorry, let me backtrack. Both of our parents nurtured us perfectly or didn't nurture us perfectly, but we interpret that differently. Why does that happen? Oh, I know it's, it's confusing. You know, I don't think that there's an easy way to say there's one answer here because we've got yeah. genetics. So we have predispositions of our genetic coding. We've got epigenetics, which is the way that all the other things that have been happening are turning on or turning off particular internal resources. So like, let's say we're hypothetically is a problem because you and I can't be in the same room. This is why twin studies are so interesting because they're in the same room. They have the same parents. They have so many right. of the same experiences. It ends up shaping their genetic expression and it ends up influencing their psychology and they end up finishing each other's sentences. They end up, you know, like there's so much similarity, but it's even not a perfect one for one there. So I think that the reason that's complicated is because there's, it's like, I don't know how many words or how many directions could you take this conversation? Like you've got a million and one. I, I have a ton of questions. <laughs> yeah. And, and then you, you have all of that kind of bubbling under the surface and then you could go wherever you want. And so that's kind of how life works. If you and I were in separate families, similar, similar type experiences, there's so many other micro elements involved in it that we, I don't think we can answer that. Yeah. No, no it makes it, sense. Yeah. I haven't yeah, seen any. It definitely makes sense. I am curious to also throw this in there. You know, we're talking about you know, buckets of age, zero to two, whatever they may be. I'm curious to learn from your work, your studies and whatnot, what age grouping do you feel like has the most impact on performance? Mm, that's a cool question too. I like how you're working, man. Is that, I appreciate it. Yeah. I don't think there's what's called in science and developmental science, there's sensitive periods and there are critical periods. Like if you don't get, if your hearing is compromised at a young age, it's not a sensitive period. There's a critical period there for you to be able to have a tonal appreciation for the way your voice sounds. Mm -hmm. And so if you, there's like a lot, a lot of examples, but I'll just stick with just this one for a minute. So that's like a critical period. If it doesn't happen at an early age, it's kind of like you lose it if you don't develop it earlier. And then there's sensitive periods where if you don't get it in, let's say, let's use sport. Let's go back to sport. If you don't do rotational sport stuff at a young age, it's harder to pick it up post-puberty. Sure. Um, there, there's, 
you know, golf, hockey, disassociating like like skating or surfing, where you one part of your body is doing another one thing and the bottom half of your body is doing something else. There's like a dissociation, a rotation, rotational sports. It doesn't mean you can't get it, but if you get it in earlier, there's an advantage. So to your question, like just thinking about those two frameworks, to your question is I don't think that there's something that's considered optimal, but as you move further along the path, you move out of sensitive windows for neurological mm. patterning. That being said, and I'll explain that thought in a minute. That being said, this is the exciting part of some of the neuroscience research is that we used to think there was a pretty sharp decline around 40, you know, it's a cliff around 40, there's another cliff 45 and 50. And, you know, there's a decline that comes from cognitive functioning. And we know that that's not what we thought it was at an early age or at earlier in the science. So what you focus on grows from a neurological standpoint, from a psychological standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint. And what you focus on, those neurological wires, they hang together. And when the neurological patterning becomes familiar, it becomes easier to do. So when you're early and you're thinking about the golf, a getting a golf swing, you're getting your brain and your body to line up and there's not a whole lot of competing noise, right? You're laying the tracks without like old habits, let's say. This is why if you're starting something at six or three, in some cases, or nine, you're not competing with old patterning. Now, if you if you pick up a golf club at the age of 26, you've got 20 some years of patterning that you have to override, shift, change, manipulate, create a new groove for. So it becomes harder to do, if right. that makes sense. So, so I think that the best way to think about it is you're working at a deep level to rewire and you're rewiring patterning, literally brain pattern recognition to be able to do something well. And this is why the research around deliberate practice is so important is because if you practice in a sloppy way, you're grooving, you're patterning in a sloppy way. If you practice with precision, then you're grooving with precision. And one of the ways to practice with precision is this uncommonly deep, nauseatingly so focus. And when you can go, when you can take your mind into that state and over time, keep focusing on with precision, that you end up grooving precision and you, you can repeat it with precision later. So that makes I sense. That I love this. No, it de definitely it. does. It, it leads me to think of the quote, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, although it doesn't necessarily fit to a T here, but yeah, it's, it's just harder. You definitely can. Right. Yeah. That's what we found in neuroscience. You can't. It's just a little harder. But that's what's cool about I don't know how old you are, but that's what's cool about us as adults is that the game's not over at 40. The game's yeah. not over at 65. You know, we do need to continue to stimulate and try to unlock and solve complicated either movements or ideas to keep our body switched on and engaged mm. at the way that growth can take place. And Absolutely. so yeah, it's a good finding. It's a really good finding. There's so much hope for what we're capable of. We have not uh, tapped the surface of human potential. We haven't even gotten close. Really? Oh, yeah. Not even close. Now, when you say human potential, are you talking on all fronts, physical, mental, et cetera, or specifically mm -hmm. in one area? Yeah. What we're capable of, we are not even close. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's so exciting. Are you saying yeah, I mean, like, are you telling me that people are going to be able to, you know, jump over the backboard in 10 years? Like, so we think there is some research in a point of view that we are right at the edges of physical speed, let's say, that we can't okay. quite sort out how we're going to get faster. And what I'm suggesting is that when we look at where somebody started training, formally training in a sophisticated way, their mind, 
relative to, so let's say it's a world record holder. Okay. And so they're at the upper limits of, of speed. We just saw like a 201, is it a 201 marathon? Like two hours, one minute, like that's crazy. Yeah. It's just, you think about the pace. I mean, but anyway, so there's the point of view that people, we we can't figure out how much it's marginal, how much faster we're going to get. And I say, right. So let's say that that's a genetic freak that worked their ass off and had a great coach and a community that supported them in a great way. I would say, I would agree with that point of view. If that person also from a very young age worked with a very sophisticated psychological training component, then I would say, right. But you and I both know things like, here's a bit of research that's interesting. And I'll come back to my point is that you give two groups of people milkshakes. You tell one group of people that this is a highly fat designed milkshake, you know, designed to be high calorie, you know, fat inducing. And you give that same damn milkshake to another group and you say, hey, this thing is, is full of micronutrients. This is great for you. This is a root, this is a health boosting milkshake. And at the end, you measure their experience. The people that you were told that they're going to get fat, they got fatter. They mm. put on more weight. <laughs> They metabolized it different because they thought that. So our mind is the power of our mind and the power of our brain, from my point of view, so raw. It's like, you know, a stallion that somebody has kind of gotten on and ridden, but knows nobody knows how to fully maximize this thing. And so it's exciting times. It is. I'm curious to learn how much, you know, you mentioned like we're reaching the edge of human speed. How much of that is impacted by the fact that we're not being chased by wild animals anymore? And maybe some people are, but you know, us per se. Yeah, we still have the same circuitry. Like our brain hasn't changed that much. You know, your brain and my brain, if we track back to our ancestry, you know, it's millions of years old and it's not optimized to figure out how to answer text messages, download this app, you know, drive and chew gum. Like it hasn't really figured all that stuff out. So, so there's the multitasking that was not around when the brain was doing its biggest you know, leveling up of work has not changed that much. So, but the circuitry is strong to run from a predator. That circuitry is there from a brain standpoint, but it's, we're not having to do it on a frequent basis. So the genetic, the conditioning passed down from your ancestry to my ancestry, most recent ancestry is probably not as tuned as it maybe was, you know, 500, 2000, 3000 years ago. Okay. Sure. And so more than 500, more like 2,500, you know, 3,500. So Anyways, it's a good point that you bring up and I'm less interested in that part though and more interested in there are people that are running really fast and I don't think that that community from a young age, the same age that they started physically training, have been training their mind. Yeah. And if if you've got someone in your community that says, no, 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 that's me, then maybe like a Shaolin monk, I would be down with that. But you know, yeah, absolutely. I love this. I absolutely love this. I'm curious to go back to when you were talking about upgrading our software. Listen, I'm a millennial, just turned 30 years old. I am all about instant gratification. I'm trying to shift out of that. So, my question is when it comes to upgrading software, if we are, you know, on level A, can we go from level A to level Z, or do we need to install B, C, D, E, et cetera, et cetera? How many upgrades do you think you've had? significant upgrades in your software across your three decades? I want to say they've happened in incremental periods. Most recently, I'm still in an upgrade phase. I could tell you from June 2020 to now, I'm still in an upgrade phase. My -hmm. software is still being upgraded. I had a moment where I stopped installing for a little bit, you know, in like February of this year to about September of this year. 
I will also go back and say that I feel something similar in 2017 to, I'm sorry, 2016, potentially 2015 to 2018. Same mm-hmm. thing, a window of installing and then, you know, a specific period of time where I stopped. And this is just me going through the years and looking at how I've grown, specifically from a mental perspective. I'm no longer so growing physically. How many physically. significant upgrades do you think you've had? Where if you look back and, you know, the iPhone 1 mm-hmm. is still an iPhone, but it's like way different than whatever number we're on now. You know, like how many significant yeah. upgrades? I want to say five. I would call it four or five to four. my knowledge. Yeah, right. Okay, there you go. So let's just say, let's, let's just go with five. And so that's like one point whatever per decade, you know? Yes. Or is it, yeah, one point seven. It's not two, but it's close to it. And does that feel like that's enough for you? Does that feel like a good pace? Well, I can't compare myself to anyone else's journey. So my answer has to be yes. Yeah. And would it I, sounds would, like- would I like more? Yeah, of course I would. I mean, I would like, I wouldn't like to know everything. I was about to let that, those words spew out of my mouth, but mm-hmm. I would like to be closer to, you know, the person that I'm destined to become. Yeah. So we're a work in progress for sure. And yeah. the, the more work that you do specifically designed to work on that upgrade, the faster that upgrade happens. But there, I don't know a way to go, you know, from A to Z. I do know how to speed up A to Z, but not skip steps. So I don't, I haven't found that I have a disdain. And that's a strong word because like, it's a deep concern is maybe a better way to say it. This idea of hacks and tricks and tips and, you know, secrets that I just don't know any. And it's not because like, I'm not interested in efficiency and speed, but I actually don't think you want to have hacks. So you don't want your tattoo artist to be a hack. You don't want your psychologist to be a hack. You don't want your surgeon to be a hack. You don't even want your real estate agent to be a hack. You don't want your financial advisor to be a hack. Why would you want to be a hack for yourself? So I I have concern about the hacking idea. I am interested though in like, how do we build sturdy, durable, time-tested scaffolding around our original programming? Like, how do we do that? How do we build a sturdy foundation of mind? A sturdy, meaning I can be flexible, I can adjust, but I can also stay true when it's hard. And that's the psychology I'm interested in. So how do you do that? It's like, just like anything else, you, you, you work with a professional. Yeah, I keep saying that. But you'd be exposed to communities that are doing deep work rather than flimsy surface work. And so when you do flimsy kind of surface work, it just doesn't hold up in, in deep waters. And I come from the maritime world and we don't pray for calm waters. That's not what it's about. We pray to test the strength of our anchor. We test, we pray that when we go into the wild, that we have what it takes to navigate it. And why are we interested in the wild? Because that's where we get to know, like, what are we really capable of? And so, so I think that it's a long way and a little, maybe a little too poetic way to say you can increase the speed, but I wouldn't try to skip steps. Interesting. So would you say that our software upgrades are already within us and we need to peel back the layers to bring them out or are they outside of us and we bring them in? Cool question. I think everything that you need is already inside you. However, it's often unavailable. You've already unavailable because the lack of skill to be honest with oneself for most people, I'm not, maybe you're different, you know, but the inability to be honest, the, the inability to see and feel and have somebody or something challenge you. So oftentimes we don't truly know who we are until we're in an environment that forces us to square up with 
how we're responding. And so that environment can be a loved one. That environment can be an exacting environment. That environment can be mother nature. And so that's why I was attracted to mother nature at a young age, because she, to overuse the metaphor, she she doesn't care. She's doing her thing. And if you're not in rhythm, you're going to leave, you're going to leave, you're going to leave the experience scared shitless, (laughs) you know, right? Like, because like, you know, if you can't figure out how to be in rhythm with yourself and with her, it's, it's a, it's a terrible dance. And so, (laughs) so it's the environment that allows us to square up and to get to the truth. And so, but you've already faced hard decisions, difficult experiences, emotional heartbreak. I hope you have. You've already experienced feeling like a fraud. You've lied, you've cheated. You've already faced like what shame and guilt and things that seemed impossible and you figured them out. You've already had the joys and the riches and freedom to to play in, you know, in life the way you want to. You've had a full experience likely most people have. And so it's already in you. And that's why we need environments and people to hold us honest, to examine, how do I work through this? What's dangerous, I think, Matt, is when people say, you know what, I think you should. And then they go rattle on some bullshit. I think that's really dangerous. I think advice is, I think it's dangerous. And so it can be. Yeah. I think it's dangerous. And so and I've been fortunate enough to have some deep mentors in my life that have taught me that, you know, and they ask better questions than anyone else in my life. Yeah. Are, are you wearing off-white? You're, you're stylish. Yeah. How about it? What do you, what do you, you like <laughs> I just noticed it. I'm looking at the logo. You're like, listen, this nerd actually like enjoys a little bit of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm curious because I... When I think of your name, I think of the word mastery, right? I, I think you've literally attached that to your brand quite well. So I'm curious, like, what is mastery to you? Thank you. I'm going to not be esoteric for a minute, and then I'll, uh, hopefully I can go there with you, is that mastery is a deep command of self and craft to be able to artistic, artistically express on command. Okay. And so let's play it back. Deep command and to be able to artistically express anywhere, anywhere, or anywhere and everywhere. And so the artistic part, you know, we could pull that open and like, what does that mean? And command, what does that mean? So both of those I have the highest regard for command and artistry. And so if you think about, I'll give you an example. One of the projects I worked on was with Luke Akins and Luke Akins is regarded. Oh, here's a fun way to think about mastery too, is like game recognizes game. You know that yes. that idea. And so when somebody is masterful at something or on the path of mastery, even by the way, masters don't say, hi, my name is, and I'm a master. They're like, agreed. It's, you know, it's more like, no, I'm trying to figure it out. It's like the black belt who's earned his seventh degree black belt, but is still wearing the same black belt that's turned white. Yep. My son, my son studies in the arts and like his, um, his master is like legit and it's, it looks white. His belt looks white. It's such a, <laughs> but anyways, game recognizes game is another way to think about it. It's like somehow when you spot or see something and it can be just a glimpse and you're like, Ooh, there's something there. Like that's, that is different. So let me go back to command and artistry and talk about Luke for a minute. So Luke Aikens had this idea of building out a project and he's regarded as the best in the world in space, you know, like jumping from airplanes and base jumping and, you know, parachuting, base jumping and wingsuiting and all that. And so he wanted to be the first person to jump from 30,000 feet where an airliner flies and to, but to do that without a net. I'm sorry. What did I just say? But to do that without a parachute and 
to do that, his creative mind was like, well, let's build a net that I'll land in from 30,000 feet. So when you're next time you're up in an airliner and you look down, try to imagine hitting a, a something the size of a two car garage. I don't so want to think about jump, that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's insane. So he and his team built a 16 story net and you can see all this online. So this is one of the more recent projects I worked on. I've done a couple with Luke and think about the command of mind to jump from an airplane. Think about the command of craft, the command of his body to be able to put everything on the line. And so I have such regard for those that put everything on the line. And then I start to click down a few levels to get to sport. It takes a while to get down, yeah. you know? So those humans that are truly testing the edges, those are the ones that I go, there's mastery there. I love that. It yeah. leads me to ask you the top three characteristics of achieving mastery, but I'm going to ask you to let me potentially answer this first based off of how you define mastery. Is that okay? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. So you mentioned command and artistry. So instantly my mind goes to self-love, which I'm going to consider a characteristic, discipline in regards to command. And then the third, although I don't necessarily have a third written down, I'm going to say desire. How much does what I think those three characteristics are align what you think the top three are of achieving mastery? Yeah, I would absolutely nod my head to all three of those and say, yes, stick with those. You okay. know? And if we thin slice some words around there, that would you know, that's not important. But those three for you, those sound like I would nod my head to them and go, yeah, I think we'd, we'd agree over a cup of joe. Like that's, I'd want to understand more. Like what does that stuff mean and what does it look sure. like? And the self-love one I think is aspirationally true. And I'm not sure that all of the masters or even the majority of masters I know in sport have a self-love, but the masters outside of sport that I know it's definitely folded in there. And so yeah. aspirationally, I go, yeah, that is a good one, you know? And so, well, I think, you know, as an artist, you know, and you're an artist too, right? Whether it be podcast, you're putting out book. We all, yeah, like, yeah, a hundred percent better than others, but you know, like, yeah, I think, I think we all have the ability to express that way. Exactly. And to be an artist, you have to love yourself and, you know, maybe you can love yourself more, but you have to be able to love yourself to put your work out into the world because you know instinctually that people can criticize what you put out into the world, right? So that's well, where my mind went with that. Yeah, I think, again, I think that's, I think there's an aspirational bit to it. And we might thin slice this one a little bit because I've been fortunate to work with some artists who, you know, they fill stadiums up in 15 minutes when they announce that they're going on tour, like those types of like mega, mega uh, artists. But I think that there's a neuroticism in many of them because it is, it requires such vulnerability to express yourself that to create something net new. Man, I, I love artistry. I love artists. I think that like the vulnerability required to feel and put words and movement to it and in doing that in such a pure way that other people feel as well, like that is awesome. So I, I think there's more neuroticism than self-love and there's more commitment to something that's pure and true than necessarily like a love of self, but that's why there's so much drugs and drinking too, because it's it's quite overwhelming, that type yeah. of commitment to purity and honesty. It's And that's why I have such respect for it. And the spiritual masters, I think, when you think about them, even the historical ones, or even the ones that are teaching us that are alive now, I would say, yeah, I think that that would be 
ground zero for them. Think about Buddha, Mother Teresa, Confucius, Muhammad, Jesus, you know, ground zero is love for them. Yeah, I love this. I could talk to you the rest of the night. I do need to let you go in a couple minutes. So I want to ask you this, a question you wish more people would ask you and how you would answer it. Yeah, I, listening to some of your other podcasts, I, I thought you were going to ask that. And I, I was, I'm totally blank. Like it's, it's funny and I, I don't want to have a bad cop out here, so I'm going to work, but I, I did entertain this prior to this and I didn't have an answer even now, but I, I don't really think like that. And so it, it's even thinking about it now, it challenges me. Like, what do I wish people would ask me? Because it's a selfish I, way of thinking. Yeah. It's more like the question that is interesting to them, like not so much the question that's interesting to me. So if you're interested in something and then it, it hits me, then I'm stoked. Like, yeah. so it's not like I wish people would ask me how big my foot is. So I, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> well, I don't listen, to- if you don't have anything for it, it's all right. I think the purpose of me asking that question is to ensure that my guest enjoys themselves on this show as much as I, oh, I, I enjoy it. Matt, I I'm did. Glad. Yeah, I did. I, I appreciate it. Like, it, it's more the yeah. vibe that you create, which is like, hey, how about this? And how about mm. that? And how does this relate? And then give me the space to kind of muse with you. And yeah, and nothing scripted. We're just kind of riffing. But I do think a, a question that I wish I would ask more people is like, if if I if I really knew what you knew, how would I be different? You know, like, and and or if if a senior leader in an organization knew what you knew. How would they lead differently? Like, I wish I would ask that question more often. And so I don't think that, I don't, I don't even know if I have an answer necessarily, but I do think that more people, like I want to come from a loving, kind, support and challenging place. Yeah. So there's that, so that support and challenge and the nature of being human is really important. And if we don't connect to that part of us, you know, we got org charts and power rankings and we got like all these right angles and jail terms that we use in medicine and politics. And like, I don't know, man, like, I think we're pretty off center in, in how we're treating each other. And so like in my company, we've got, you know, we've got a small team. We've got 23 folks that are working on the finding mastery mission, which is taking best practices from sport into business. And we don't have an org chart. Mm. We're, we're adults. Yeah. And we got, you know, <laughs> I like that. And, yeah. We're adults. And so what do you mean power? What are you talking about? We are all agreeing that we're going to go figure out how to have a fire every night. And so some people are going to get small wood. Some people are going to get big wood. Some people are going to get brush. Some people are going to figure out how to make fire. Some people are going to, you know, get a wind protector. Like, I don't know, we're mission minded and we're, we, we are fundamentally not going to have an org chart. So there's no power and structure. Anyways. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, what would someone who knows what you know, or let me reframe this a bit, looking at society right now and the challenges that millennials face per se, whether that be anxiety, whatever it is. I'm just curious if people knew what you know, what challenges would they be able to navigate better? That it's not as scary as you think to go within and get honest. And when you do that, there's incredible freedom on the other side. And so every investment of being honest within is worth like a tenfold investment on the way you live after. Like it's a joke. And Yeah. And, but, you know, we got this hyper masculinity bullshit that we've been handed from, you know, the industrial revolution and before, like that because you can't see it, we shouldn't be really talking about it unless it's called formal religion. You know, it's like you you can't see that stuff either. You can't even see gravity, but you know it exists because you can see the artifact. You can't see your mind, but you know it exists because you can see behaviors. And so it's like, it's this, it's a joke, really, that we're having to undo some scared alpha male bullshit from years ago saying, you know, harden up, you know, toughen up. Like you don't need water. You don't need to 
what's this psychology mumbo jumbo? And part of that's the science fumbled early too. So, sure. um, yeah, so that, that would be one of them for sure. Like go within and get honest. And the, the, the 10X on the other side is ridiculous. I love that. Now I, I need to let you go. I'm going to have show notes. We'll have socials, websites, all of that good stuff. But anything we should let the people know about that you might be working on that I don't know about. Tell me, maybe be on the lookout. I just submitted a my my full manuscript to HBR for a book that's coming out sometime next year. So maybe kind of awesome. get on. You know, that's it's on it's on the fear of other people's opinions and how dangerous of a potential constrictor that is. So it's gonna. I'm excited about that. But you know, maybe t- Matt, can you take thirty seconds and tell me about your community? Yeah, absolutely. I, I like to refer to our community as high performing millennials. Those that want the most, and this is how I define high performing for our community. Those that want the most out of every bucket of life. And those buckets are relationships, health, spiritual, mental, emotional, physical, career, finances, et cetera, et cetera. We actually have a predominant physical, sorry, female audience versus male audience, which I thought was different. But yeah, I mean, we're just millennials that are trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah, that's cool. So I I don't want this to compete. I don't know your business model, but one of the things that we did is that we took Coach Carroll's head coach in the NFL and he and I built a online course. And so that online course was our best way to try to make sense of all of the psychology that we found to be important for adults, basically. We designed it for adults. So it's taking the best practices from the psychology of excellence and then getting it out of sport and, you know, moving it into the much larger communities. And so like, it'd be fun to maybe do a little competition with you or a little something with you where like if somebody in your community says, okay, listen, I really want to train my mind and then give us tag you, tag me, you know, we can pick, you know, like if they say, I really want to train my mind. And the reason is because, and they just give you some reason why training their mind is like, now is the time. And oh my God, if I could get this $500 course, you know, like for free, like I'd be so stoked because of A, B, and C, like maybe maybe you want to give one away. That would be fun. If you're, listen, if that's what you want to do, say the word, we could definitely do that. That'd be fun, dude. Yeah. Let's, let's, I would love to do that. Let's flesh that out with Sandra. Uh, I'll reach out to her and let's let's flesh out those details. If you're down with that, I would I would love to. That would be yeah, awesome. And I'm I'm yeah, really grateful it. for that. Yeah, it's easy. That's really easy. I appreciate that. Now uh, I know I need to let you go. We're over time, but Dr. Michael, I appreciate it. Uh, this was absolutely incredible. Really excited to put this out into the world. So thank you again so much. Appreciate you. Thank you, Matt. You have just tuned into the Decoding Success podcast featuring our friend Dr. Michael Gervais, who is helping us find life mastery for ourselves, defining it and knowing how to get there. Beyond that, as mentioned earlier in this episode, all you have to do to be entered into the contest, the giveaway of Michael's course, Finding Your Best, screenshot this episode, post that on your Instagram story, your Twitter feed, Facebook, wherever you may do that, multiple entries if you do it across all platforms, tag Michael, tag myself, follow us both, and you are now entered into this contest. We'll probably run it for about a week after this episode. You could find more about that on social media. But again, if you want to be able to craft your personal philosophy, set a vision, and apply and bolster the skills of confidence, optimism, feeling calm and mindful, In under-pressure situations, this is exactly what you need. And this is totally free to do. All you need to do is share the word. It's as simple as that. Furthermore, to find Michael's socials, websites, all of that good stuff, it is in the show notes of this episode, as are all of the details for the giveaway. You could check that out in the show notes. Until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.